Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Yeah, the second time is always better. It's um, a real joy for Brenda and I to be here with you, and uh, we're excited to see what the Lord's going to do this week. We uh, drove down from the Bitterroot in Montana on uh, Friday and Saturday and arrived here uh, Saturday afternoon. It's been just a lovely time so far. A little warm, but very lovely. Uh, actually, my wife and I had a conversation we've never had before. Um, we were discussing whether a sweatband constituted a head covering or not. <laughs> and uh, we came to the conclusion it did not. And uh, you can tell me what your thoughts are on that. I suspect that through as we go along, as, uh, depending on how warm it gets, I may look like Keith Kaiser pulling out my handkerchief and rubbing sweat off, but uh, the Lord will bless. All right, if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua. Uh, last evening, I introduced the topic by uh, starting with the Pentateuch and, and suggesting that God is really giving us one continuing story here of how he's dealing with his covenant people. So in Genesis, we saw that because of sin, man was brought down. And in uh, Exodus, through the blood of the Passover lamb, God brought uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, which is a symbol of the world, and out of bondage. And he does the same thing for the believer in the church age. Through the blood of Christ, we're brought out of the world. I love the way Paul talks about it in Galatians 6, how the cross reaches down and carves us out of the world as a people unto the Lord. And uh, we're here at the ecclesia, the church, the called out company. And he's also delivered us from the bondage of sin. And then we saw that in the wilderness, after God opened the Red Sea and vanquished the enemy that was pursuing his people, uh, in Leviticus, God brought his people as close as possible by blood. Um, the idea was, I'm holy, you be holy. I'm holy, you come near. And God wants us near, but he wants a holy people. And uh, we can't come near him unless... Uh, it's in holiness. And then in Numbers, um, we see God testing his people, bringing them through trials. And in Deuteronomy, which means second law, he brings them back. Moses reminds him they're at the brink of the promised land. Moses is getting ready uh, to die. Um, by the way, God never tasked Moses to bring the Israelites into Cana. If you look at Exodus 3, very clearly, God only tasks him to bring him out of Egypt, bring the, his people out of Egypt. Um, Moses was the lawgiver, and the law could never save. Um, it only shows sin, we read in Romans 3.20. So it was appropriate for Moses to die. Um, the law could never bring into resurrection life, the blessings of resurrection life that God's covenant people would experience in Cana. He had a different man in mind, and that was Joshua. We've seen him in the Pentateuch, um, a servant of Moses. Uh, we see him on the mount waiting as Moses was up on the mount. We see him uh, among the uh, Malachites, slaying the Malachites in Genesis 17. Uh, a godly man. He was um, God's choice for bringing his people into Canaan. And so we're going to study this week, and we're going to see Joshua, which means Jehovah's salvation, exact same name as Jesus in the New Testament, 
is going to bring them down through the Jordan and bring them back up, picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And just kind of giving you a, a snapshot of where we're going, they come to Gilgal, and uh, Gilgal means rolled away, and we see that um, at Gilgal, God's people, the, the men would be circumcised. They couldn't have, uh, have a Passover if they weren't circumcised. They hadn't been circumcised for over 38 years. So there's this consecration, a new beginning at Gilgal. God was rolling away the shame, the reproach of his people. He was starting afresh with them. And then as the people would follow Joshua into Cana, and they would go on with him in faith, following Joshua, we see them entering into conquest. And as a result of faithful conquest, they were able to lay hold of their possessions, the inheritance that God had for them. And as they laid hold of their possessions and their inheritance, they entered into God's rest. And it's same for us in the church age. As we go on with the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, we lay hold of our spiritual blessings in heavenly places. There's a treasury there. And unfortunately, we live like paupers. We're not appropriating, we're not experiencing God as we ought. And so, my burden this week is to think through how to be more victorious for Christ and also how to lay hold of our spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Practically, what does that look like? Now, when we look at the book of Joshua, it's I, li I love key words anytime I do a book study. Uh, you'll find the words possess or possession 24 times in the book of Joshua. Key word. You'll also find the book uh, or the word rest, another key word in Joshua, inheritance. And so these are intimately tied as we're going to see in chapter 1. All right, verse 1, John, uh, Joshua chapter 1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this, this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates, river Euphrates, at the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. We'll pause our reading there. So after the death of Moses, Moses died. He didn't come across the Jordan. God buried him. Moses got to see the promised land from a distance. It says after the death of Moses, and mark this phrase, the servant of the Lord. Um, only once in the entire Pentateuch do we read of Moses being mentioned as a servant of God. Not by title, the servant of the Lord, in Exodus 14.31, he's just mentioned as the Lord's servant. The servant of the Lord. This is a title that we find three times in this chapter, 13 times more in the book of Joshua, attributed to Moses. Moses finished well. Moses wasn't a perfect man, but he was a man of faith, a friend of God. He dwelt with God in 
Um, by my count, I think Moses spent somewhere between five and six months up on Mount Sinai with the Lord. Can you imagine? His seventh trip, and by the way, the, Moses went up on the mount seven times. This is a whole other subject matter. Each time represents seven major dispensations of Scripture. The seventh time he came down, his face shone like the sun. And that represents the millennial kingdom, the dispensation of Christ's kingdom, the seventh dispensation. Um, but he, was, he spent time with the Lord. He was a friend of the Lord. He's called the servant of the Lord. And it's a good reminder that we want to finish well for the next generation to have a pattern to follow. At the end of this book, Joshua's going to die. In chapter 24, it's recorded, Joshua was a servant of the Lord. He finished well also. So it should be our desire to finish well for the Lord and leaving an example for the next generation to follow. And that's exactly what Moses did. A little side note, in um, doulos is the Greek word normally translated servant or slave in the New Testament. But in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5, when um, God is talking about, the writer's talking about Moses uh, being a servant, he uses the word therapon, which means devoted servant. And no other person in the entire New Testament gets that accolade. Their opponent's not applied to them. Not even the Lord Jesus. Uh, of course, there's higher accolades for him. But it's uh, just a testimony to the faithfulness of Moses. So Joshua's going to be the new leader. Um, he's told by the Lord to arise, go over this Jordan and the people, and give them the land that's promised. He says, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. So he's uh, repeating the promise he gave Moses. He's telling Joshua, lead the people over the Jordan, bring them into Canaan. And then he tells them the whole boundaries of the land that he's given his covenant people. Now this can go back, uh, you can see this in Genesis 15, when God first tells Abraham, or Abram at that time, here are the boundaries I'm going to give uh, your people. Um, is Frank here yet? Okay, I said this two years ago. I'm going to pull down my imaginary map, and Frank goes, I see it. I remember I chuckled about that for many... If you don't know Frank, Frank is blind. And he says, I see it. Okay, I'm going to pull down my imaginary map here. I'm going to reverse it. So if here is the Mediterranean Sea, and here is Israel, uh, you got the, the Brook of Egypt down here into the Sinai, and then uh, over here... Um, is Iraq, Iran, you got the Euphrates coming down, uh, Lebanon, Syria. The Hittites dwelt up in this area. And so God was giving his covenant people in time this whole vast region. Now when you get in the last part of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel actually shows the allotments for each tribe in the millennial kingdom. There's there's slivers of land about 17, 20 miles wide, and they go for a vast direction. By the way, that prophecy's never been fulfilled, right? And God is a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his promises. That will be fulfilled. Israel will have that property. Uh, if they took it now, there would be a major war, because a lot of it's in Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, it wouldn't go over so well, but God is going to keep his promise. So the idea was 
God is his best for Israel at this time was Cana. He was going to bring them into Cana under Joshua's leadership. As they conquered the land, then in time he would spread out and give them more and more. Of course, in the millennial kingdom, it would all be theirs under Christ's reign. He says, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Those words have comforted God's people down through the ages. Jeremiah chapter 1. I think Jeremiah was probably 18 or 19 years of age when God called him. He was a priest. And God calls him to be a prophet. He says, I'm, I'm but a child. And uh, God says, I will put my words in your mouth and you will speak them. Don't be afraid of their faces. I will be with you. David Livingston's Bible in Psalm 46, uh, talking about the Lord of hosts being with them, he had basically rubbed the print off the verses of that chapter. He'd gone over it so many more, so many times, being in the interior of the African jungle by himself and with the Lord, preaching the gospel, and he understood the, the Lord's presence. Now, this is fundamental. When you understand that you are one with Christ, um, we have these wonderful identification truths in Scripture that we, we died with Christ, we were buried with him, raised up with him, made alive, we're seated with him in heavenly places, uh, we're glorified in him, Romans chapter 8 tells us. We're destined to rule and reign with him. Uh, if you have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are one with Christ forever. Amen? That, that's a beautiful truth. What that means is everything that comes into my life every day also comes into the life of the Lord Jesus. I can't deal with it, but he can. And so what God is telling Joshua here is, I will not leave you nor forsake you. So as we're thinking about um, what God is directing Joshua to do and the encouragement uh, I would just suggest three main points here as we go through these verses uh, 6 through 9. Joshua had a calling, and he was to obey it. He was to take the children of God, the Israelites, over the Jordan into Cana and conquer the land so he could divide it and give them their, their inheritance. If you're a believer, if you're part of the body of Christ, you have a calling within the body also. You have been uniquely selected, uniquely equipped to fulfill a divine mission. You have a divine calling. Do you know what it is? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? God has chosen you for a specific purpose. He hasn't just saved you to save you from the lake of fire. He has sanctified you for his use. And as we go along with him in faithfulness, then we will fill, fulfill that calling. So, as the Lord tells Joshua in verse 6, Be strong and of good courage, for this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. It's likewise, God, the Lord Jesus is telling us to be strong and of good courage. <clears throat> Everything comes into my life, comes into his life. Uh, as we walk along with him, then we're able to fulfill our calling. Every victory is his victory. Amen? Every victory is his victory. So he says it again. He says it three times in this uh, chapter. 
<coughs> be strong and of good courage. Verse 7. Only be strong and very good courage that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. First point is, obey God's calling for your life. There have been times where I knew where God was leading me. It was like a fog ahead, but I could, I could sense a direction. And as you take that that step of faith into the fog, he illuminates usually just the next step, enough for you to, to be tested Will you go on with him in faith. And you take it, and then he illuminates the next step, and he kind of leads you along, and then things kind of materialize as you go, and it becomes more evident as you go along with him. You see blessing, you have joy in, in uh, serving the Lord, uh, what your calling is. So obey your calling. The second thing is we have to obey his word to prosper. We have to obey his word to prosper. He says that you may prosper wherever you go. I don't think there's any uh, greater way to go through this life than to be walking with the Lord, enjoying his presence, knowing where he's leading, knowing that he's never forsakes, he's always with us, knowing that every victory is his victory, knowing whatever comes into my life comes into his life, and walking into that with such courage and expectation of what he'll do. So often we get rattled when trials come. We come before the Lord, crying, whining, pleading, as if he's not even aware of what's going on. The Lord's fully aware of it. The real test of faith and where, where we are spiritually is, do I come in the Lord's presence with rejoicing and thanksgiving in those situations? With an upward and forward look, an upward look into the character and attributes of my great God, and a forward look expecting what he'll do. Daniel did that in Daniel chapter 6, when the death warrant was signed. He doesn't go to the king. He doesn't try to uh, talk his way out of the situation. He doesn't go to the law office either. He goes to his, the upper room, and with an open window, he prays to his God, and he says he gave thanks. Wow, if that was me, I'd be saying, Lord, they're out to kill me. Daniel thanks his God. This is a real test of where we're at, our response to trials. I, I'm not going to take the time, but Brent and I have gone through doozies here in the last five, six weeks. We have been broken before the Lord in ways we haven't before, weeping together before the Lord. Series of incredible trials. And here we are, and we are joyful. And uh, it's a joy to be here with others that are like-minded and love the Lord too. Verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Again, obey God's calling for your, your life. Obey his word, whatever he says. Measure your spiritual growth by sensitivity to sin and yieldedness to the word of God.
for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You have to trust the Lord to enjoy his presence. Obey your calling. Obey the word to prosper. Trust the Lord to enjoy his presence. And uh, we'll, we'll go forth mightily in everything that we do with the Lord. Verse 10, Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go into possess the lamb which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So he's saying, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm taking you into the land. It's going to be your possession. Possession. I, I made the promise to Abraham. I've verified it other times, and now I'm bringing it in uh, to fruition. It's going to happen. Now, the three days here, I think, better relates to chapter 3, verse 2. After the spies left Jericho, we're going to look at this tomorrow night, God willing. After the spies left Jericho, they didn't go uh, east towards the Israelite encampment. Uh, Rahab says, no, go hide in the mountains, which were to the west, the opposite direction for three days, and then then rejoin your countrymen. And that's what they did, and God preserved their lives. So that three days is probably um, relating to when the spies come back, then there was three days preparation, and then the whole nation would cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Now we're going to talk about the two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and a half tribe of Manasseh. Now, you might recall that as they were making their way up the Transjordan from the south, um, you know, there were people picking fights with them. They weren't, um, they weren't particularly looking to fight the, uh, the Moabites or the Midianites, but because of deceit, trickery, um, uh, just evil disposition, there ended up being conflict. And then they took out the two Amorite kings and their armies. Well, this is going to come into play because Jericho hears about all this and they're fortifying themselves uh, to try to withstand the, the attack they know that's coming on from the Israelites. So as they're making their way up the Transjordan, um, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they're looking at this vast land, a lot of uh, good grazing ground. They had a lot of cattle. And I said, you know, Moses... Uh, Basically, this is what they're saying. We can't imagine what God has for us in Cana being any better than this. We want this. <laughs> um, first of all, Moses said, well, he warns them, but he says, no, the two and a half tribes says, no, we'll go with our brethren into Canaan to help them take their possession so they can enter into their rest with God. Okay? They already, because the Israelites worked together, conquered the Amorites, the Moabites, and so forth in the uh, eastern plateau in the Transjordan area. And so they had already gotten their possession. So they'd asked for it. It was permissible. I do not believe it was God's best for them, but it was permissible. And the sad part about it is as the centuries roll on, 
it was those two and a half tribes that entered into paganism first. And according to Scripture, First Chronicles 5.25, it was those tribes that first lost their inheritance. The Syrians took them out in 734 to 732 B.C. And then the Assyrians came back about 10 years later, and then they took out Israel, the northern tribes in Israel proper. But it was these two and a half tribes that said, hey, we can't imagine Cana being any better than this. We want this. It was permissible because it was within the range, the borders of the whole title deed that God had given Abram. And so uh, that's what they got for possession. It's just a reminder, don't settle for second best in the things of God, right? Um, if, if we are trading the best for the good, we're in error. If we're trading the good for the acceptable, we're in error. We should always want the best. Uh, I remember when the kids were small, um, and you know, maybe you didn't have these problems, but discipline problems, right? Okay. <laughs> um, cute little sinners, but still sinners, and they, they act up, and there would be penalties uh, for disobedience. And afterwards, Brenda would go like this. She goes, are you in the circle? And if the child could go up, would calmly put the finger in the middle, that says, okay, you're yielded. You know, the discipline has served its purpose. I remember one time, I won't tell you which child, went up and went, <laughs> well, after a few more taps, the child got back in the center. You know, we want to be in the center of God's will, right? Don't walk the perimeter. Don't walk on the boundaries. That, that's where you get into trouble. Be yielded. Again, that's the, the second point. Obey God's law. Uh, obey his will for you. So, verse 13, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is giving you rest and giving you this land. Mark that. That's the key. See the tie between land and rest. For us, it's life and rest. Our, our life is in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a great verse for that is Ephesians 2.14. We have our rest in him. We have our peace in him. It's secured in Christ. We have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in him. Ephesians 1.3. Uh, Ephesians 2.6, we're seated with him in heavenly places. That's where our life is right now. Physically, we're here, but God sees us in his son in heaven. We're just his ambassadors representing him here. But our rest is with the Lord in heaven. Beloved, whatever trial you're going through, whatever comes into your life, all beneficial spiritual exercise begins at the point when we rest in him in heavenly places. That's when we start drawing from the heavenly um, reservoirs, the treasuries of grace and blessing. At the faster that we yield and say, God, I can't do it, I rest in you, we're going to find that flooding joy in our souls, a peace, and then we go on with him, and whatever he has, we accept, this is what a sovereign, all-powerful, almighty God has for me. And we can just rest in that. So, God is giving you rest, and he's giving you this land. That's the message to the Israelites. To the church, God is giving you rest, and is giving you this life. It's the life of the Lord Jesus. Your wives and your little ones, 
and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, but you shall pass before your brethren armed all the mighty men of valor and help them. Now, it's interesting in chapter 4, verse 13, we find out how many men from the two and a half tribes actually went over the Jordan. It was about 40,000 men or roughly one-third of the fighting force of those two and a half tribes. Well, that kind of makes sense that you need some to stay back and protect what's already been taken. And so uh, these 40,000 men from the two and a half tribes, they were going to be uh, the strike force. They would go over the Jordan first. They were armed. They wouldn't be encumbered with family, possessions, and so forth. And so they were the ones that went into Canaan first. Then those of the nine and a half tribes following with their families and all their goods crossed over uh, the Jordan. Verse 14, your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, but you shall pass before your brethren armed all your mighty men of valor and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest. When would they get their rest? As he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land. See, they would get their rest when they took their possession. But they would have to cross over the Jordan. They'd have to circumcise, consecrate themselves in holiness to the Lord, follow Joshua in faith and conquest. As they were faithful in conquest, they'd lay hold of their possessions. And as they laid hold of their possessions, they entered God's rest. Sadly, that's the first 12 chapters of Joshua. The last 12 chapters of Joshua, they didn't go on with the Lord. See, this was going to be a test. Corporately, under Joshua's leadership, they did well. But the test came when they got their individual inheritances, would they drive out the rest of the inhabitants? And sadly, they failed. And that's why we have the book of Judges, nearly four centuries of declension and sorrow and misery. It is always a sad state when God's people don't go on with the Lord. There's only one direction to go. That's forward. It sounds like a new book. Go forward, right? So I left off in verse 15. So they're going to get their possession and land, that you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, when Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. So after they accomplished the conquests in Canaan, then the two and a half tribes would go back to the Transjordan area, and that would be their inheritance. So the answer Josh was saying, all that you've commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all the things, so we heed you. Only the Lord, your God, be with you as he was with Moses. So there these um, two and a half tribes, they're saying, we're, we're going to follow you just as we followed Moses, as Moses followed the Lord. And that's always a good test for leadership, right? Um, Romans 13 tells us that all authority has been in place, put in place by God, which is a hard pill to swallow given our present political situation, right? But it's true. Um, the leaderships that God has put in place were under his authority. Uh, there's only two types of authority in Scripture, God-ordained authority and satanic authority. I like to think of them like a funnel, right? We have civil authority, 
We have church authority. We have family authority. God's put in place. The leaders aren't perfect, but God is teaching us submission to himself through this leadership. And when we said, I'm going to remain under God-ordained authority, although it's not perfect, they serve a perfect God who has a perfect plan, a perfect order. I'm going to receive his blessing. But if we rebel against that authority, we're not escaping authority. We're putting ourselves under satanic authority, and there's no blessing there. So let's keep in mind the big picture here when it comes to uh, authority over us. Nothing's, elders aren't perfect. Husbands aren't perfect. Government leaders aren't perfect. God is, and he's trying to teach us submission. And so they're saying, as long as you follow the Lord, we're going to follow you, just as Moses followed the Lord. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. It's a good, really, uh, kind of a theme for this chapter. Be strong and of good courage. And that'll be my prayer for you. Go on with the Lord. There's no better way to go into any fray, any situation, going on with him, resting in him in high places, with great expectation of what he will do, praising, giving thanks, and rejoicing in him. Father, we thank you for our text this morning. We pray that we might be mindful of it. We pray, Father, that uh, we would not be a people that's looking down and back, looking down into humanism and secular solutions, and looking back, comparing to where we were yesterday, uh, just being given to murmuring and complaining because our expectations aren't met. We pray we be people that are looking upward into the attributes and character of a good God and looking forward with expect expectations as to what a great and good God will do. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us in these things, that we might be strong in the Lord and be encouraged in the Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen.